Welcome to the Rebenamed Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. Tonight on the show, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Behind the Candelabra, the new HBO film directed by Steven Soderbergh. We're going to be talking about the fourth season of Arrested Development, and we're going to be discussing the end of Jeff John's landmark nine-year run on Green Lantern. With me this evening, we have Sam. Hello. And Chris. Yo. And I want to start the show off by apologizing. We've had a few-week break here, what with uh, my traveling for the summer and various scheduling kerfluffles. So we've been off for a few weeks. Hopefully we'll be back to a more weekly schedule now going forward through the summer. And hopefully we'll have some cool, interesting summer things to talk about uh, as we progress through the season. But for now, why don't we uh, move straight into discussing Behind the Candelabra. Um, Sam, uh, why don't we start off with you and your thoughts on the movie? Sure. Well, this this is significant, you know, not only because of what the movie's about and it's an HBO movie that has big stars, which isn't really anything new. But this is supposedly Steven Soderbergh's last movie, I think, right? For he's, either he's, the foreseeable future or his retirement or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. So I think it is significant uh, for fans of his. And he's a pretty, uh, he's one of the biggest directors, I think. And around. I mean, I guess he's, he's not maybe the most bankable, here. but, um, what was that? What did you oh, say? Oh, I said he's yeah. I mean, he's a big name and he's also very prolific. You know, he's he's sort of bounced yeah. back and forth between doing indie films and more mainstream stuff like the Oceans movies. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I think he's been a pretty big deal in movies for you know the last twenty five years. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if he's like super well known in mainstream, but he definitely has made super mainstream movies. Yeah, I mean. Which is kind of- he directed the Oceans movies, like I said. So I, it, yeah. even if you're not familiar with his more uh, indie work, you probably have at least seen those or are familiar with them. Um, though I wouldn't say they're necessarily emblematic of his whole career. Yeah, I mean, he did. He just he makes whatever type of movie he wants to make. He's and not really. Yeah, he, uh, he directed Out of Sight, which we discussed in the podcast not too long ago. And he did Traffic and Magic Mike. Yeah, Magic. he's all over the place, which is. Yeah. Which makes him interesting. Um, so what did and you I think? I guess he's all right. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, what did you think of this movie uh, in particular? Or do you want to talk a little bit more about Soderbergh first? I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, it's just going to talk about like Sex, Lies and Videotape. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Is probably his most well-known indie movie. And it kind of he burst onto the scene with it. It was his debut. Um, I guess it sort of launched uh, indie cinema yeah. as a whole. Uh, and for a little while, yeah. that uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And for a little while, there was buzz that perhaps his supposed last film, Behind the Candelabra, would also take home the award, though it didn't end up doing so. No, but I guess that's when we could start talking about what we thought of the movie. Um, I think just me and Jordan have seen it. Chris, so, you'll have to Chris, sit this one out. Chris, we yeah. should start I, uh, I haven't watched it yet. I intend to, but it's just one of those things that is still in the queue. Uh, it's... Um, we're we're all gonna take turns sitting out. So. Yeah, yeah. This is this is gonna be a, a podcast full of uh, people sitting out one segment um, for various reasons, as we'll get into later. <laughs> we've we've been fighting a lot recently, so this is one of our. This is be this podcast is our podcasts. white album. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna switch off tracks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we all hate each other, so yeah, it works out well, I think. Sam is the you, Ringo. You still sound well. Sam. I want to be the Ringo. There's three of us. We don't need a Ringo. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we don't have a like, George actually. We'd no like one, to have a no George. One's George. <laughs> no one's George. No one's George. No one's George. 
Rachel's the Ringo. <laughs> too bad about her can't Rachel be death. like can't Rachel be the one that was like was in the Beatle before Ringo and then no one knows about oh uh is it Richard Best I think that's right I think so sorry Rach Rachel's Rachel's Richard Best yeah Chris I hope that's you looking up who the fifth Beatle is or the not the fifth Beatle who was their manager but the guy who was the Beatle before Ringo no afraid not damn well, I'm going to say Richard Best. Uh, listeners, if I'm completely wrong, I'm not looking it up. So uh, let us know through many of the uh, one of the various avenues that we'll provide at some point during the show uh, for you to contact us. And then you can win a special prize of me saying on the podcast, I was wrong about this and this person told me. Oh, is, I think Pete Best? Pete Best. Uh, well, never mind, listeners. You don't get a prize because Sam already told me I was wrong. I, I, needed, I needed Google, but I got it. <laughs> I have all right a, how about I we talk about this movie we can talk about this, this podcast is going great so far yeah. guys we are just just like riding a bicycle we're back in it well we take a couple weeks off and you know talking over each other and talking about you know pete best for uh several minutes of our behind the candelabra segment does it it's almost as if this was a happy hour podcast which it is not it is not happy hour this is a sad no, hour no podcast. happiness no happiness in this podcast eh, all I'm depression Okay, behind the candelabra, Sam, go. Um, I thought it was great. I thought it was really entertaining, and it shed a lot of light on uh, the movies about Liberace and one of his boyfriends, whose story is, I think, I guess of all Liberace's boyfriends is like the famous one. Um, Matt Damon plays his boyfriend, uh, Scott, and it's a very, very strange relationship. Um, between Liberace and Scott. And it, it kind of looks at that relationship and what being with Liberace was like when Liberace was somehow not out and uh, was somehow famous for playing for playing piano in Las Vegas to crowds of old women. Yes. I, mean, I thought it was tremendously entertaining. It was um, a really interesting character study. Michael Douglas uh, played... Uh, Liberace and was I thought really great and they there's lots of lots of wigs and prosthetics throughout this movie which it was I watched it with Ashley and and she said it's kind of bordering on camp but it never goes there all the way I think yeah I feel like I feel like the makeup budget on this movie had to be like tremendous (laughs) yeah they did a good job and we were always curious because one of the big one of the big story points that is kind of more famous about this particular story is that Liberace had his boyfriend get plastic surgery to look like him, like look more like Liberace, which is terrifying. So we were curious about how they would do uh, the prosthetics after the plastic surgery. And they did a great job on both of them. They did. They really did. Um, yeah. The prosthetics on both of them were amazing. Uh, I'll, I'll take mention this now for the first time, though it will probably come up a few more times. Cause it was one of my favorite pieces of the movie was Rob Lowe who plays their plastic surgeon. Yeah. And who looks yeah, like Rob Lowe kind of stole the show. Yeah, I mean, he looks he looks like to me like a latter day Michael Jackson in the movie. He's all all plastic surgeryed up, and he's sort of just this phenomenal, uh, not really very supporting turn. It's a, it's a small role, but he just like steals the show, like you said, and he was amazing in it. Debbie Reynolds plays Liberace's mother, and I didn't even know it was her until the end yeah, credits. I didn't recognize. I didn't her. know we didn't know it was her until the end credits either. That was like a great surprise, and I guess a tribute to their. More wigs and makeup. Lots of wigs and makeup throughout this entire movie. And they, they did a pretty good job covering her up and 
And, and I she, assume Debbie Reynolds must have known Liberace. Yeah, I imagine they were, she did. They were both kind of on the circuit at the same time in Vegas, I imagine. Yeah. I, um, I, I mean, I don't know for a fact, but I would assume, like you said, because they were sort of similar time periods and on the same circuit that they probably at least met. So that's got to be interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I never, you know, growing up, I knew Liberace was basically a synonym for very flaming homosexual. Right. Um, but there was a time, and this this kind of joke pops up in Good Night and Good Luck, but that Liberace was a certified bachelor all up until the late 80s, or not the late 80s, the late 70s. And even he died from AIDS. And even then they tried covering it up and saying it was something else to maintain this image that he's the straight guy. But, you know, looking at him in the movie and looking at him, you know, in footage, you have to be blind. You think. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, you know, it was a different time. And I think one of the things I liked most about the film was the way that it sort of roots you in late 70s, early 80s Vegas uh, and in the subculture that Liberace almost creates and definitely inhabits of uh, this very closeted uh, man in public who is actually very, you know, privately, very clearly gay. And most people in his private life seem to know that. But uh, publicly he has to keep up this facade and there are there are several instances in the film where it it the wear and tear of this shows i think very apparently but i thought the world building was one of the things the film did very well and yeah absolutely the, the wigs and makeup did a good job of that but just the whole thing i think was very well done in that respect yeah i mean i like i like that they take you into his inner circle and you kind of you kind of understand all the mechanics behind his relationships with the people around him with Dan Aykroyd, who we got to mention who plays his manager, who does a good job. Um, but we see at the beginning of the movie, um, what's his name? Cheyenne, uh, Cheyenne Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. Cheyenne Jackson, who, who's playing his protege in big quotation marks. And he kind of looks like Liberace also and plays the piano with him. Giant Jackson kind of, is, is pretty great in a virtually wordless role, too. Yeah, he does a great job being a pissed-off, spurned lover. Yeah, and I, I almost, like, watching watching that, I just thought, like, so he really, like, he came onto 30 Rock, and it was like he was going to be a big deal for a little while, and then he sort of disappeared. And then, you know, he's got sort of a thankless role in this movie. And he's I think he's really talented in the few things I've seen him in, but <laughs> maybe someday he'll have a role that he that is actually prominent. <laughs> um, well, so, you know, he, he did good here. Yeah, I thought, it, I thought it was very good. He, was in, he did a good job in his Steven Soderbergh movie. And this is maybe a, a segue to talk about the specific performances um, for a minute. You've already mentioned that you thought Michael Douglas did a great job. Um, and I thought he was excellent as well, though perhaps slightly less excellent than I'd been primed for by all the all the things I've been reading about it. Um, I thought, to me, the best performance in the movie is Matt Damon's. Um, I thought he was incredible. Yeah, he did a great job, too. He did... I think he did a good job of playing much, much younger than he yeah, was. Yeah, he's playing, I mean, so. Thorson, I think, when the movie starts as a teenager, or, like, very early Yeah, 20s. he's, like, he's, 17 or yeah, 18. Yeah, I think, think. he's supposed to be 17 when the movie started, and, I mean, Matt Damon is, you know, 40-ish. Uh, he's playing someone decades younger, but it's fairly believable once you get past the fact that you know it's Matt Damon and you know he's not that young. And I think... Um, where Michael Douglas does a good job sort of sort of showing uh, how Liberace is, is structured to hide so much of himself and has trouble opening up and has a lot of issues. I think 
Damon gets a, a fuller character arc as as uh, Scott grows up and sort of has his well, life he changed. Has, he has the advantage that, I mean, the movie's his perspective the whole time, which you get. So, you know, you get you get a more full arc, I think, because right. not to spoil anything for Chris, but the relationship doesn't work out. And and you follow wow, you follow what happens to you. Scott. And yeah, you uh, you're sympathetic to him. And you see kind of like where his life goes and, and you kind of only pick up at the very end what happens in Liberace's life. I mean, I guess you can make a lot of assumptions. It's not it's not exactly coded, <laughs> you know, what happens with Liberace. And, no, it isn't. And um, Soderbergh, he doesn't exactly he doesn't. It's not super subtle when he shows like a headline about Rock Hudson dying of AIDS. And right. Then, and then it like cuts to however many years later in the 80s. I guess Liberace died in 88, I think. Yeah, 80, 86, 87, somewhere right in there. Um, and I, again, I think I think Michael Douglas was very good. Uh, I do think he he got above uh, strict impersonation, which can always be a, a tough line to walk when you're playing someone as iconic as Liberace. Um, and I don't. And, yeah, flamboyant, and I think it could have been it could have been easily over the top and he didn't take it there yeah i think i think he he managed to play the role he dialed he dialed back a lot of what you said could have been over the top i agree but he also i felt like there was a character beneath the the impersonation you know it you i think you got to see sort of the underlying motivations there in ways mm-hmm. that um I, I don't know i think maybe a lesser actor wouldn't have been able to pull off yeah, I thought I thought he was. I mean, at first I thought it was kind of a strange choice, hearing that he was cast as Liberace. But I mean, they, he did. A, I think he did a really great job. And I'm sure, you know, let let alone. I mean, the fact that this is an HBO movie, and on top of it that it has such prestigious actors like Michael Douglas and Matt Damon, and it's directed by Steven Soderbergh. I have to imagine that this movie will win every single Emmy that it's qualified to win. Oh, it's going to win a bunch of Emmys. It's going to win a bunch of Golden Globes, you know. Yeah. You get the advantage. I mean, I think uh, it'll be sh- it'll be slotted in with miniseries, I think, um, which is usually a pretty, uh, you know, a category where one movie tends to walk away with everything. And since Downton Abbey has sort of inexplicably been shuffled back and forth between miniseries and not miniseries, I'm going to... Well, it's going to be hard to call it a miniseries at this point, I think. Right. Do you think, it, I think it's past it's a that. series now, um, which means, I think, Behind the Candelabra will kind of walk away with everything. And for the most part, I think it deserves that. I think this was a very good film. Um, I think it was incredibly well acted, very well directed. I, like I said, I think the sense of place is maybe maybe the thing I'll remember most about the movie. I really felt like it, it felt in a lot of ways uh, like the way that Boogie Nights handles the transition from the 70s to the 80s. Uh, which well, they, they, both have, they both have the title cards uh, between the years, making it very, very specific about you know, the reflection of the time and what's going to happen to these characters. You go, oh, it's the 80s now. Well, we're fucked. And I, that's kind of what Boogie Nights gives us. I mean, Boogie Nights is much more explicit in that yeah. it happens Yeah, the Boogie Nights transition is much more, like, you know, exactly. It's it's much more of a yeah. heart <laughs> transition. Um, won't spoil that for those of you who haven't seen Boogie Nights, but you should. Uh, but I did, I thought of that movie several times, which I think is always a good thing for a film that I'm saying, if I'm thinking of, you know, one of Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson's various masterpieces. <laughs> Um, are there other things we want to talk about with Behind the Candelabra? Um, not much for me. I think just, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Borrow somebody's HBO Go account if you don't have it and watch the movie. I mean, I think this would have been, a, you know, 
there's nothing TV movie about this. This could have definitely stood up as just a regular theatrical release movie. Yeah, I feel like I feel like the line between HBO film and and actual movie is usually much wider than this. And the few HBO films that I've sat down to watch, they feel more like TV movies a lot of the time. Uh, this this could have uh, played in theaters very easily, and it did. It was it screened in competition at Cannes, which I think I don't know for a fact, but I think it's the first like HBO movie to do that, and probably the first television movie to do that. Um, and I think part of that is because of uh, Soderbergh's influence. Part of it, I think, is because it's just good enough to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, I think yeah, we can we can probably wrap this up by saying Behind the Candelabra, very solid movie, uh, great performances, great script, great directing. Go check it out. Yeah. Uh, and with that, why don't we why don't we shift gears and talk about season four of Arrested Development? I want to preface the conversation here by saying we're going to start off without spoiling a single thing and talk in broader terms uh, about season four. And eventually we will move on and um, we will clearly demarcate the point of the conversation where we will start spoiling anything that happens. So if you have not seen it yet or if you've only seen part of it, Go ahead and keep on listening. We'll let you know when to stop if you're trying to avoid spoilers. Uh, and Chris, why don't we turn to you and we'll have you kick off our conversation here. Sure. Um, I guess what else is there to say except for I think this is one of those things that we all kind of went into thinking that we were excited, but it could have gone really, really, really <laughs> wrong. I mean, there <laughs> there was so much much expectation built up around this project. And really the only thing you had um in recent memory to sort of be able to predict how this was going to look was probably one of the worst shows i've seen on cable recently which was running wild which was mitch Hurwitz's, to my knowledge most recent project was there anything else he's done since uh no i think he's pretty much well, on arrested development since running wild okay yeah so it was well we didn't he did uh, the animated show he did sit down and shut up right that was uh, before running wild oh it was okay yeah but he yes yeah. you're right that was all he also did that and that was also not all that impressive Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what we had to judge this by. And um, I mean, for a while, we just heard a lot of different information about what this was going to look like, what kind of form this was going to take. I mean, I I think that I was hearing about two to three different rumors a week about what this was all going to look like when all was said and done eventually. And until we finally got to that day where they're all released at once, I think I am personally most surprised that the Netflix servers didn't crash or there wasn't some massive problem with their, the streaming quality based on just well, I think how many people they were, were smart. What, what they were you were saying very smart to release it. Um, they were very smart to release it on at midnight West coast time. Yeah. Because while maybe everyone on the West coast was sitting there at midnight, I think you had a lot less people who were sitting at 3 a.m. on the East Coast ready sure. to marathon it. And they were just they were counting on a lot of people kind of who are going to watch on the West Coast, maybe getting them out of the way. So by the time you get to the morning you know, or the next, you know, the next day, I think you have a lot of people watching yeah. it there. I hear I hear a lot about things like that uh, and a lot of speculation as to why they didn't crash. But the more I think about it, the more I think there are like there are more Arrested Development fans than there were when the show was on, to be sure. But it's not that large a group of people probably still. And considering not everyone was going to marathon through it and not everyone was going to be watching it exactly the same time, I imagine there are like large swaths of people watching things on Netflix instant at any given time. So I think sure. the uptick was going to be was going to be yeah. large and it was going to be probably a bigger group than is usually watching, say, any given thing movie that's streaming. But I imagine it's probably not as huge as all of us Uber fans were thinking, oh, there are going to be so many people watching it. It's probably a number that they were completely prepared to deal with. Well, I, I agree with that, but I think 
imagine if it was if it was released 12 a.m. East Coast time. That means people on nine, the West Coast yeah, would West get it Coast. at nine. That means everyone in the country would be watching at the same time. That's right. Because yeah, and I mean, I look. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the Netflix servers could handle. It could be like, oh well, it could have just been like a microscopic blip. Sure. Even if they did that, I, I don't know what their thinking was for that. I think. I mean, part of it is it's just fair. I mean, they they said they were going to release it on the 26th, and it was still. You know, they yes. wanted the timing to work out for the whole country, I guess. Well, and part but, of it is that Netflix is headquartered in California. <laughs> that too. Um, but I mean, also, like, they were releasing it specifically on a holiday weekend, and they were, I think, anticipating that people were going to be off on Sunday, and they're going to be off on Memorial Day. So they're going to kind of have it, like, spread out, and they're going to get probably the bulk viewing out of the way. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think it, the nightmare for Netflix with something like this would be a crash because people, you yeah. know, there would be a huge loss of faith in Netflix's servers in their original content. Uh, it would be terrible publicity if they'd had a crash. So I imagine they were doing everything in their power to avoid that. Yeah, I think they were prepared. I think they went and I think they had a plan, and obviously it worked out because there was, it, to my knowledge, it went off without a hitch. Yeah, yeah, I haven't heard of a single problem. I didn't have any buffering problems at all. Yep. I think they they all buffered very quickly. Yep. Uh, so now that we've talked about the the uh, not crash that happened, um, why don't we why don't we move into a little bit? What did we think of the episode? Sam, you haven't seen all of them yet, right? No, I think I'm only six or seven episodes in. I don't remember which one. I, the the last one I watched. What you're thinking so far? Huh? Why don't we start with um, you thinking so far? Sure, let's start with me because you guys you guys have a little bit you have a more complete picture because you know the sense I'm getting is I think Mitch Hurwitz really really wanted something where. He needed to take time to reintroduce everyone and kind of tell he, he's not just picking up and saying, let's just go right where we are right now. He wanted to, I think, let everyone let everyone know what these characters have been doing for so long. And he didn't. I, I think it I mean, I'm not sure if it would have been a mistake to just pick it up and just say go with all their stories just starting. But I think he's taking the time to reintroduce the characters and where they've been. Uh, these past, I guess, six years now. It's been so something watching these now reminds me how long ago the show was on. Yeah, it's a yeah. long time ago. A lot of people look different. Some people look more different than others. Portia de Rossi. Um, <laughs> when yeah. I started watching it, my, my brother, uh, I watched all of them on Sunday in a marathon session with my brother, which he does not like sitting still, and that was tough for him. But uh, we got through it. And when, when we first saw uh, Lindsay appear, he was like, that's not the same actress, is it? Yes, Taylor. Wow. That's Portia de Rossi. Well, um, what's, what's, what's also disconcerting is everyone, the problem is since they're doing so many flashbacks, a lot of people are like wearing weird wigs and things Yeah. to like look younger and it's, they don't look like normal human beings. So it's kind of distracting. It's like when Tobias gets hair like earlier in the series, it's like, <laughs> like something's off here. Um, a lot of but, people look different. Um, Jessica Walters looks exactly the same. <laughs> Yep. As uh, Jeffrey Jason Tambor David. looks exactly the same. Will Arnett yeah. looks a little bit different. We weren't sure what it was with his face, but I think right. I thought he looked pretty much the same. I thought Tony Hale looks pretty much the same. Yeah. But I mean, really, it's mostly Portia. It's Portia and um. I thought Jason. Was, I think Jason Bateman looks older. I know you said he looked the same to you, Chris. I I think he looks exactly the same. But I mean, I think everyone looks kind of older because I mean they it's are been older. Seven years. So like, yes, yeah. maybe yeah. seven years in in the last seven years. Unfortunately, Mitrovic did not put them in cryogenic sleep during the cancellation period. See, if he really cared about the fans, he would. Yeah, if he, yeah. If, he had, if he was honestly committed to giving us the experience we wanted, he would have cryogenically frozen the entire cast and the writer's room and revived them when the Netflix deal came through. 
Well, aside from that obvious like critique that I think we'll all hold against him forever. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it it I thought it was a a good move to kind of like reintroduce people. I, I agree with you, Sam. Like there were two ways to go with it. But I kind of like this approach to it because I think I, I I thought that Hurwitz found a nice balance between welcoming back the more casual fans who may have forgotten, who maybe haven't watched it all like nine or ten times as I've done, and like welcoming the more casual fans back, allowing it to be at least slightly accessible for new fans, but at the same time not really talking down to the diehards, really just giving them enough new material to bite into, even during the scenes that were clearly just like this is a reminder of where they were at. This is kind of what they've been doing and therefore who they are scenes and that every episode kind of comprised of. Uh, it's interesting you say that. I think one of the things the show did well, and I, I've read some complaints elsewhere that I think are off base. I think it avoided uh, doing a lot of like, remember when you thought this was funny references? Like there were, there were yeah. callbacks, but there were callbacks like we saw during the three seasons of the show when they would call back to other jokes. And I don't think, uh, that, I mean, I don't, I don't know I think it feels that way because it's been so long. I don't know that the comedy ever relied on, like, you laughed at this before, you will laugh at it again. Uh, maybe, yeah, you disagree, Sam? You think there are some of those? I do. I think there are those sometimes, but it might just feel that way because it's been so long and it's just kind of like, we remember this. It's like when Star Trek will make a reference to one of the old Star Trek. It's like kind of like a winking reference. It's like, we know, like, we know what you like and we know, you know, we remember what was like a big joke to you guys, too. And. I mean, the thing is, Arrested Development it is a show that does callbacks all the time. And, like, the yeah. things with, like, Anne, you know, they're going to call Anne, like, her or whatever, or forget who Anne is. That's that's fine. I think sometimes it just, to me, I can't, I'm trying to think of, like, specific jokes. Um, I but think sometimes to me it just the, felt the like. Forget me now. The like, forget okay. me nows were a big part of this season. I actually the, think I was just going to mention, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up, Chris. I think th the three biggest callbacks that I can think of were actually things that were sort of smaller jokes in the series that now become sort of plot points in this season. And none of them yeah. felt all that forced to me. And they actually, like, the forget-me-nows, and um, I don't think this counts as a spoiler, so I feel like I can say it. The forget-me-nows and the fact that B's return as a plot point, yeah. both of which are, yeah. like, two of my favorite sort of one-off or very small jokes in the series that become larger plot points here, but they don't feel unnatural to be integrated here. And I also think for all of the uh, the and jokes that I was expecting them to have, they, they exist there, but they come up with... There's a way that they spin it, and there's almost a new and joke that I think is as good as... Uh, as the old one and different. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I some of the stuff with Anne. I mean, I just watched the Anne episode and like when they're at the church and like the church is like it spells her. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, yeah, we get it, we know. That's like the Anne joke. But I liked. Um, that felt I, like. And, kind of and again, I don't think this really counts as a spoiler, but the, there's instead of you know whenever someone says Anne throughout the season, it's like and this, like no one ever seems yeah. to take it as a, take it as her name, which is something I don't think they ever did during the series, and I, I thought that was a clever little riff on. The Anne thing. Yeah, I mean that's See, like I a new there, take I think on there, it. Yeah, there were definitely the the there were definitely references to the old favorite jokes, but at the same time, I feel like they gave you enough new material, not just in terms of um like new twists on the old jokes, which there was a lot of, but they actually I think there was a lot of things added to the mythos and the running jokes in these new episodes. So I think they really struck a really great balance between. Again, satisfying the diehards and giving you something new. It wasn't just like a greatest hit, slightly repackaged kind of experience. It was definitely like, this is the rest of development, you know, because here are the jokes that you loved. We're just continuing to evolve them as they did throughout the show as 
from season to season, jokes would continue to grow and change and be slightly twisted around, but also adding in some new jokes and allowing those to become part of the canon. Yeah, and I, I think um, the biggest, some of the biggest complaints I've read, and I just I agree with some and disagree with others, and we'll get into them in a bit, but I think this season, season four, Mitch Hurwitz has been very open about, he was trying to do something different with it, and while at first it didn't work for me, the more I've thought about it, and especially the more I've thought about it as he conceives of it as a middle chapter between the show and either another season or a movie, depending on if either of those ever comes, if that comes to fruition, I think I think the way he structured this season, and like I said, I think we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, yeah. is, is really smart, and I've liked it more as I've thought about it than I liked it initially, and I think it'll probably play very well on the rewatch, which we're all probably going to do, and I'm sure he expects. Oh, absolutely. And I... Yeah. I, I had the same reaction you did. Like I, when I first started watching them, my I think my gut reaction was this doesn't feel like Arrested Development. But then the more I watched, the more I became okay with that because it it, it does feel like Arrested Development, but it feels like a new sort of packaging for Arrested Development. It feels it feels like a it does feel like a break off. This is a new chapter. This is a new um a new way to experience these characters and kind of see into their lives and i think i think that break is good because again this was something that there were just so much there's so many expectations for there was so many people who have this idea of what arrested development is and what arrested development feels like that it, it that's like that's a daunting sort of group of um voices to, to satisfy so i think it was almost good to kind of tweak it a little bit make it just a little bit different make it sort of it's all it's its own thing to an effect but still faithful to what came before i think yeah i think it had to be its own thing because if it had been anything like a clone i think we all would have smelled uh the difference and been more yeah. upset about it sam what do you think about this before we sort of go into the nitty-gritty a little bit well i think i'm in a, an interesting position compared to you guys because i'm i'm in the first half of the season and i i have felt trepidation with how the show is structured i feel like having I mean, everyone knows this at this point. This isn't a spoiler, but he focuses on specific characters, at least so far through the first, you know, for the first half of the season, where each episode it's like, this is like Job's Arrested Development or Michael's Arrested Development. And it 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 feels, it's definitely a different, very different structure. And I felt like part of what made the show really, really successful for me was all these amazing characters interacting with each other more than what's happening here because now it's it's a he has to he has to he has to, he has a, a certain goal to accomplish here in telling these character stories and kind of getting us up to date on everything and i think he's he's um to do that he's kind of getting rid of an aspect of the show that i thought really really worked well and was one of the show's greatest strengths was that everyone interacting with each other i was talking to ashley the first the job episode is i guess six episodes into the show now, imagine a season of Arrested Development where you don't see Job until episode 12. It's hard to believe. I mean, the interaction of all the characters and they're all all there. They all have you know individual stories, but they're all interwoven together really well. Now, what he's doing is he's in, he's still weaving those stories together. But instead of having them all take place at the same time, as was more, I think, conventional for the show, he's showing one character's line at a time per episode. Now, I don't know how much this changes uh, as the se as the season goes on. And I have a feeling, you know, it, it, it's all going to work. You can see kind of how it's constructed. But at the same time, some of the, the jokes where it's like, you know, 
you see someone running by and you're like, it's not explained, but you're like, oh, okay, that's going to come back in another episode. It doesn't feel as nuanced to me. Or there's maybe some things that are supposed to be kind of like twisty. It's like, oh, that's who that was over there. It was so-and-so doing this. It's like you can kind of see it coming from a mile away, and I don't think it works as well. But I feel like he's he's doing this for a very specific reason, and I think there's a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done to kind of catch the show up and kind of bring it to a place where, yes, we can get all of these characters back together in a room I doing think, what they do best. I think he's doing it uh, for two very specific reasons, one of which is obviously the necessity, uh, which is he couldn't get all of the actors on the set at the same time yes, almost ever. absolutely. Um, because of their schedules. So the structure of the, of the season became like, when can we get people to interact? And it's not that often. So how do we use that uh, to build a narrative? But I actually think, and that at first I was like, okay, I just have to reconcile myself with this is the way it had to be. You know, that's something I, I talk a lot about. I can't blame a show for something that's out of their control. Um, uh, I think we've spoken on the podcast before. I definitely spoke in my reviews at the site about uh, the season of The Good Wife and how Matthew Perry was supposed to be a regular character, but then he was on Go On and they couldn't get him, and that caused problems for the show. I can't really blame the show for the fact they had to write around the absence of a character they expected to have. I can't really blame Arrested Development for the fact they had to write around the various famous people's schedules, and it's great that they got them and so many recurring characters back as well. But I actually think they did something really smart narratively that I didn't appreciate as much at first, um, until I started thinking of season four as this middle chapter the way Hurwitz has said many times he's conceived of it, which is... When you watch Arrested Development, the original series, you get the, you know, the theme song of every episode is, you know, the story of a man who's trying to keep his family together. And season four of Arrested Development is very much the story of the family that has fallen apart. And that's yeah. that's sort of the story he's telling, and that's the point, in which case it makes a lot of sense to not have them interacting. And you miss the interaction, and that's also part of the point. It's like Arrested Development was always Michael barely keeping everyone together and everyone having all these crazy intertwined adventures, and season four is sort of what happens when Michael is no longer keeping them together. It's, well, it's fabled flight to Phoenix that Michael always said he was going to leave the family behind. Well, in season four, in, in effect, he has left the family behind, and everyone's sort of, as the new theme song says for each individual episode, keeping themselves together instead of trying to keep the family together. Well, I think that it's it certainly... I think it does accomplish that, what you just said. But for me, I find it less entertaining. And I've, I've found this season to be less funny. I mean, there have definitely been funny episodes and definitely funny moments throughout it. And still, you know, good performances. This is the same, you know, these are the same people that were amazing on Arrested Development. Um, but it, for me, through the first, I guess I'm about halfway through, through the first half, it just hasn't been as good. And I know when you're comparing it and given all the circumstances, I can't really expect it to be as good. But that's just kind of what I felt so far. And oh, even I, if oh, go ahead. with that, I mean, with with Mitch Hurwitz, like it, it does feel like a middle chapter and everything you said absolutely makes total sense. And regarding thematically about all these like this family needing to get back together somehow, that all absolutely works. The problem is I don't think it makes the fun for the best show that it could be. Um, go ahead. Chris. I. I actually, to be honest with you, wasn't, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't bothered as much by the phenomenon of them all being apart uh, as it sounds like you were, Sam. I mean, I would have preferred it the other way, obviously, but at the same time, I kind of liked the fracturedness going on. I kind of liked how they had all sort of drifted out a little bit. And what I thought this season, I, I think I would be more bothered by it if, 
we had sort of an idea of going forward of what the fate of the show was going to be. I mean, if this is just the first of more chapters we are to get of Arrested Development, then I, I actually am completely satisfied with this because I think what it really allowed to do uh, the cast to do is really just have ev- give everyone their own full moment in the spotlight, really kind of elevate some of the secondary characters a lot and also introduce a lot of new characters in there that I would be perfectly happy to see continue to pop up going forward, which is, I think the show is one of its strengths has always been world building. And I think this season did a lot of world building. And I don't think you would have been able to do that as much had you had an episode where everybody's plots had to kind of intertwine and combine. But the way I kind of look at it is it's, I, I don't even think looking at them as individual episodes is maybe the best way to do it, even though you kind of have to, but it's like, it, it's really just a big um, seamless season when you kind of think about it. It is. I mean, um, it, I think Mitch Hurwitz at it, some it is, point suggested, yeah. he suggested, I think but, at some point that you didn't need to watch them in order, but you absolutely need to watch them in order. I think there's certain ones you have to. I think you got to watch the first and the last one in order, but I think some of the ones in the middle you can kind of. What's wonderful about it, though, is I've, I haven't rewatched it, but um, my brother had friends over who've been watching it again, and I've seen yeah. bits and pieces. And what's wonderful about even what I've seen again already is that I do think you need to watch it in order, but things crop up all out of order. There are jokes yeah. that I now get that I didn't get the first time through because they're referencing a plot point that hasn't come up at that point in the episodes yet. Mm-hmm. And sure. I mean, the show was always good at that, and it's always going to benefit from the rewatch. But I think even more it benefits from the rewatch now. And we've already mentioned this structurally while we're talking about the structure. I wanted to bring up the show. the The story of the sh- of the season takes place from the cancellation to basically now, and yeah. it's not always very clear at what point in the timeline things are happening. And that was kind of bothering me. But I think upon rewatch, it will be more and more clear. And I think this is a, this is a season of television that when I watch it as many times as I've watched the rest of Arrested Development, if I do, uh, will start to crystallize and, and become um, as intertwined and as complex and as fascinating as the show used to be. It's just a lot longer process and a more circuitous... Uh, uh, I can't say that word right now. A more circular route back to that point. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Think something, I, I, I think something else that this season did well was removing Michael as the protagonist. I think after a while, it sort of became this... Um, like they were just this, like the family was just this awful, awful thing that was just destroying his life, like time and time again. Every now and then they would have their own redeeming moments, but at the same time, the show was always Michael versus his family. Whereas this season, I mean, they they still maintain that dynamic of they're all kind of awful to each other, but I think you sympathize a lot more with each character by like being put in their headspace for so long. And even still, they're, even though they're still like just screwing over everybody around them and Michael especially you you kind of there's a lot more moments where you think to yourself wow tobias is a terrible person but i actually feel really bad for him right now well, and I like i, I understand oh go ahead i no, continue i think you said this a few minutes ago but this is great for world building because before it was more structured as michael trying to keep his family from destroying like the family and the world outside and now without yeah. michael as the bounds these people are loosed on the world you know they're not yeah. all sitting in the penthouse swilling martinis and causing you know minor crises among the family this is what happens when the family is like out there by themselves you know yeah. in the desert or in a different city or you know living their own lives independent of anyone else restricting their madness and I personally, I thought there was enough, like, with the exception of maybe two episodes, I felt like there was enough other characters showing up in each other's episodes that I wasn't 
sorely missing the group dynamic. I thought it, it definitely wasn't as prevalent as the old stuff was, but I thought there was still enough there to satisfy me. I I definitely got um, my fix of these characters balancing off each other. Maybe not as much as I would have liked, but I definitely, it was enough. It was enough for me. I think I'm between you two on this, and I think it actually, again, with even a few days distance is working more for me, because I did miss the group dynamic, um, and I think that was sort of the point. You yes. know, I've, I've, I've conceived of this season in, in, in the few days since as sort of a narrative about, like, this is a family that probably needs to be together for their own good and, you know, to keep them out of society. Yeah, uh, the safety of the world. Right. And they're not together right now. So I did miss them. But right. I think and I think that it did hurt the show for me slightly. But I think it works narratively. Sure. It may not be the narrative that I dreamed of the show telling, but I think it's it's actually different and maybe not better, but maybe more uh, daring for the show to do it this way. Um, before we get into spoiler territory, I also wanted to talk about the lengths of the episode while we're in this structure conversation, because when it was on Fox, it was a sitcom that was, you know, 22 minutes long per episode. Netflix yeah. has removed the uh, the length restrictions, and we talked when we spoke about House of Cards and Netflix original programming in general about the idea that episodes could be varying lengths, and we talked about this as sort of a revolutionary thing that may happen someday. Well, Arrested Development does this. The episodes range from... a uh, I think 28 minutes-ish is the shortest, to about 40 minutes long at the longest. Um, they are different length episodes, and they are all longer than the show ever was before. Um, how do you guys think that has helped or hurt the show? I think we started with you last time, Sam, so let's start with you, Chris. Um, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that I really noticed it, because I was—I I, I started watching these last night, and I was trying to get them all done to be prepared for this, so I was just like pressing that button one after another after another. So I'm not really sure that I can totally I, I was completely aware of the effect while it was while I was watching it um it I didn't find it distracting but I'm not sure that I noticed it is what I gotta say just from the the for to me it was all just one big episode the way I was watching it sure uh Sam any thoughts on this um well I think the the episode length really depends on how you're watching the show if you're watching it one episode, you know, once every couple of days or an episode a week it might be something you notice a lot more. But if you're going to do the marathon thing, which I think Mitch Hurwitz and Netflix kind of anticipated a lot of people would do, it kind of doesn't matter at all. Because as soon as one episode ends, you're just starting another one. So, you know, an episode could be 20 minutes and the next one could be two hours long and it wouldn't really make a difference because you're just kind of you're going through it. Um, I think. You know, I don't really mind. I Most of the episodes, I think I, they're like some of them are like 35 minutes. I mean, it's kind of hard for me to judge because I don't really know the, the process for what Mitch Hurwitz was doing. I, I think maybe some of the episodes could have been tighter, but I don't know if that means they should have been 22 minutes. Maybe it just means they should have been 30 minutes instead of 35 minutes or something. Um, it's not something I particularly mind, especially since the way we've been watching the show has been you know, two or three at a time, sort of like that. And as we go forward, it'll probably be kind of a similar way. So I think episode lengths tend to matter less when, you know, you're just, you're sitting down and you're like, let's watch. We're, we're not, we're, I don't, I think it's more about how much time we're going to spend watching it rather than how many episodes we want to watch. Right. So, um, yeah, I think, I think you're both right in terms of, if I, I watched it all in one day in virtually one sitting with a lunch break. Um, and so in that respect, the, the episode lengths didn't matter to me so much. However, I do think they mattered in terms of uh, some bloat in some areas that didn't need to be. I think I think some of the episodes would have benefited from being tightened up. 
Um, and some of the jokes, I think, you know, old Arrested Development, the, the original series benefited often from even when a joke wasn't working, the show had so many jokes and so many storylines zipping around in any given episode that it didn't really matter because you were on to the next thing and the joke hadn't lasted that long. And, you know, even if it didn't work now, maybe it would be called back to later. So there was sort of a lot of uh, distractions to things that weren't working. Whereas here, I think some of the storylines that didn't work didn't, you know, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, if you will. And I think some of the storylines that were perhaps lower boats uh, weren't raised by storylines around them and were not benefited from the fact that they didn't really have to be cut down. So there was some fluff and some scenes went on for a bit long. Um, all of these things I think are nitpicky though, honestly. I've seen people who who had bigger problems with this than I did. I had a problem with it in a few instances. But for the most part, I think, yeah, some of the episodes were a little long, but I was enjoying them and I don't, I didn't mind that they were longer. In fact, I would prefer them to be, like, for example, uh, the Job episode is, I think, the longest at 37 minutes long, and I think it's my favorite. Um, it's definitely in my top three, and we'll talk about the other ones I really enjoyed uh, in a minute sure. when we go into spoiler land. But um, that episode uh, that I think we've all seen is, I believe, the longest and perhaps the best. So I don't think that the length was necessarily a detriment. And I, w I never once thought, well, this episode is twice as long as it needs to be. Um, yeah, is there anything I don't think oh, the length ever really bothered me. I think um, I, I, I'm, all, I'm always all for giving creators I love more space to do what they want to do. So, I mean, yeah, again, it maybe wasn't the tightest in all areas, but I think I would have rather them have the option than not have it. And I do feel like uh, Netflix clearly gave her with space, and I think he used it. I think yep. the longer episodes tend to feel more sprawling, and they tend to cover more story ground. Uh, you know, I don't think it feels too drawn out almost ever because I think there's a lot yeah. of ground to cover. And I think he he uses the space to sort of put you more in the character's headspace and put you more into their journey. Yeah. Um, Sam, did you have any other thoughts before we move on to spoiler territory and you probably want to get out of here before that? Uh, yeah, I think I think we covered everything that we can cover without ruining the entire series for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to head out. Uh, get out of here, uh, right. and we will talk to Sam in the near future. Those of you who have seen it or who don't mind some spoilers, we promise not to spoiler everything, but we will be talking more freely about the epi episodes. Um, so sign off with Sam if you have not seen it or if you don't want spoilers about anything, and we're going to talk more in depth starting now. Um, so, Chris. Bye, guys. See you later, Sam. See you later, Sam. Uh, okay. Yep, we've paused for long enough, I think, for Sam to get out of here. Um Chris, I'm going to take the lid off. You can talk about whatever you want now, and we can talk more freely about the season as a whole. Okay. Um, well, well, where to start? Wow, it's just such an open book. <laughs> um, I, I guess... Um, so, so you watched them sequentially, as I did guess. I? Okay. Um, yeah, there were, there were certain characters I was a little worried about them being able to hold their own episodes for. But strangely enough, it turned out not being the characters I thought they were going to be. Um, really? well, do, well, do, do you want to talk about, like, in terms of what our favorite episodes were versus our, yeah, the ones we, we didn't think? Why, yeah, why okay. don't we talk about favorites versus least favorite episodes right now? That's a good idea. Okay, sure. Uh, I definitely agree with you that I think the Job episode was one of the strongest of the bunch. Um, that, as soon as I saw that episode, it went on my uh, ongoing list of things to remember when I'm making best of lists at the end of the year. Like, I thought that was a great piece of television. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think because it was just so ambitious, it covered so much ground. It, it almost felt like several episodes pulled into one, but in a way that didn't feel erratic or um, rushed. It just felt like this is Job. Like, this is his 
train wreck of a life and him just kind of like grabbing onto any like thing he can hold on to to break his fall as he's going from one catastrophe to the next. And Job is a uh, character that I was most worried about going in because he was he was one of my favorites on the series. Uh, yeah. And I worried after so much time not writing him that he might come back feeling different, less formed or over the top. And I think the episode could easily, even in the story they were telling, have gone in any of those directions and didn't. Yeah. Um, and I, it, to me, I was kind of surprised because, like, if you want if you want something to be off putting to me, um, start with, like, drawing allusions to entourage and comparisons but as soon as they just started lampooning the hell out of it i was like i'm gonna love this i am actually going to love this a lot um, yeah i mean and there was i mean there was something for everyone there was job's obsession yeah. with trying to be friends with the the entourage ripoff and job uh falls in with mark cherry the pop singer not the creator of desperate housewives which there's a weird mitch Harris has a weird thing with mark cherry that i kind of love yeah <laughs> um, but he falls in with the entourage and that's pretty funny there's job uh trying to one-up tony wonder the magician there's job yeah. and his relationship with Anne that was alluded to in season three of the show there's just there's a lot here for fans of job you know he gets into bees yeah He's, I mean, he, he just he just really gets a, a tour of his life. And uh, also, I was very impressed at Anne's presence in um, these episodes as like her entire purpose before this was being a non-presence. I think they kind of successfully elevated her in a little bit in a way that allowed her to really sort of shine comedically in a way that she was more just always like a, a piece of scenery before. And now I think she actually got to get into the mix with the other characters a little bit. And I, I thought she kind of held her own, to be honest with you. Absolutely. And I think I think also that uh, the Job episode, which is called Colony Collapse, for those of you who are watching um, and wondering which episode we're talking about, um, yeah. serves as a, as a good halfway point and almost a Rosetta Stone for a lot of things that are going on. There's a thing in, I think, the first Michael episode that is not referenced again until Job's episode. Um and it's sort of a big twist at the time that it's referenced in the Job episode because it reveals something major happened that you weren't even like, at the time. I was like, maybe it'll be a callback character that we that shows up. But no, and, and, but and it kind of is. Uh, I guess we can talk about it because we're in spoiler zone, can't we? Yeah. Um, uh, the fact that Job sleeps with Tony Wonder. Yeah. yeah. Um, which was, and in, which in the was Michael episode, surprise. you see the shaved legs and, you you know, Job slept with a woman. Maybe Kitty's yeah. there. Maybe it's another callback character. But then yeah. in Job's episode, it's revealed that no, in fact, Job and Tony Wonder, who are in like the most weird and complicated game of gay chicken ever, where yeah. both are pretending to be gay to try to get revenge on the other one, but also kind of falling in love with each other because they don't know what friendship feels like. And yeah, that, that was my favorite part about it, is that like they're actually not gay. They just ha have no... They have no benchmark for these feelings that they're experiencing right now. The only way they can process it is through sex and schemes, because that's the only thing they know. And I knew that Ben Stiller was going to be back. And I, you know, he was here and there. And perhaps my favorite sight gag in the entire, well, no, my second favorite sight gag in the entire season is his magazine spread. I'm here, I'm queer, and now I'm over here, where he pops out of the yeah. cabinet with all the glitter. That was yeah. great. And I expected sort of little things like that. But they gave Tony Wonders almost a, an arc within Job's episode that I thought worked really well. Yeah. That that was one of the things that I think, like, we are noticing a trend with here, is that it wasn't... It, it was never the the things that were big parts of the previous seasons that were used here. It was always the stuff that had been used in small ways that were elevated in these new episodes, which I really appreciate. They didn't just run the well dry and the, their most uh, popular, their most trusted material. They sort of took some of the smaller jokes and asked, what is here that we can use? What haven't we 
uh, given a chance to in these old episodes that maybe we can use in this new season. And I think Tony Wonder is definitely a perfect example of that. It feels like a progression in a way that the show might have done had it not been canceled in the first place. Because, yeah, some of the jokes that were very small early on that would have seen, been seen as great foreshadowing when the jokes came back now sort of evolved in ways that were perhaps unexpected. And I know yep. one of my all-time favorite jokes in the series is the uh, the bees, beads, like yeah. everyone's confusion over that. And just, we'll see who makes the most honey. Bzz, bzz, bzz. Like all of that is I just yep. think, hilarious season one stuff that never really comes back and all of a sudden the the bees are back and george senior thinks they're beads for a second but that's not really like what the thing is there uh and it's just yeah a lot of little things came back in very good ways um so we we both love the job episode what were your other favorites um lucille's episode i i love Bar- barbara walters so uh, Jessica I, walter jesse walters yeah, barbara, well. barbara walters also great had nothing to do with this season <laughs> Jessica Walters, yes, I'm sorry. This it's been I was watching Arrested Development instead of sleeping. Oh, um, <laughs> little Chris. Yeah. Uh, um yeah, Jessica Walters. No, I thought her fantastic. episode was fantastic. Um like j- just the introduction of the the prison show kind of um format for how they showed the intro to that episode. Mm-hmm. And then you see that Lucille is kind of slowly taking over the, the most dangerous gang in the prison and just her comments. With, I always love that moment she does where she'll say something extremely mean and then she'll just crack up over it. Yes. Like, that's a gag that you can use as many times as they want. And I will laugh at it every single time. That her and is uh, perfect. her screaming at Jean Parmesan are things that yes. like, will never not be funny yes. to me. It's yes. just like Jessica Walters being inordinately excited about anything is hysterical. Yeah. And I, 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 think, I think she steps into her role without missing a beat in a way that even even the rest of the, the rest of the cast is great, I think, and steps in very well. But I think she is the best at like picking up as if she's never been absent. Do you think part of that is maybe the similarities between Lucille Bluth and Mallory Archer? You know, I do, but I also, I was reading an interview with her in the last couple weeks where she was talking about that, and she said yeah. you know, that she sees them as similar characters, but very different women. Um, so sure. I don't know how much that's true for her as a performer, uh, or at least maybe it's not conscious for her. Um, but yeah. she did step immediately back into the role, and you know, it felt like it, it had been a week since she'd last played Lucille. And and so well, too, and just captivated every scene she was at. I mean, she was, it, it's it's such a hard ensemble to pick a favorite out of but she was always my favorite of the old series so i, I, I think my biggest disappointment was the series too i'm sorry i say? think it's almost certainly the mvp of this new season as well oh yeah absolutely so i i don't know i'm a little torn like on the one hand i loved her episode so much that maybe it was just the right amount of focus but i could have used since certain characters got two episodes of their own focus i almost could have used two for lucille and as opposed to some of the others we got but yeah, um i loved I think- her I think we'll talk about the doubling episodes in a minute because I do have some things to say about that. Um, yeah. So, Joe Lucille, any others you want to highlight is just phenomenal? Um, I Those are the only two that are, are standing out at the moment. I, I think... Um, yeah, it's it's harder for me to pick out the individual ones right now. Those are the two... Because, again, I was just watching them all right, in one block, So, I think those... That makes sense. Yeah, the two absolute standouts for me. But to be honest with you, I don't really have a lot of episodes that I would consider clunkers either. I think these two were just my standout favorites of the bunch. Well, it's good. Um, Job, I think, is my favorite as well. But I had two that you didn't mention that are that stood out to me as just stellar. And I think one of them is going to be more of a controversial pick. I'll start with the one that I think everyone probably will agree was really good. And that's maybe okay. his episode, uh, Senioritis. 
Um, yes, yes, that one too. Yeah, I I, I really like that one. And really? that, I, that surprised me because I didn't think maybe it was one of those characters I was worried about. Like, yeah. thinking, how are they going to give? Because, like, she was always the character who, um, it, it felt like they were always, like, they did funny stuff with her in the show, but it almost seemed like maybe they were just kind of like searching for things to do with her because they could never really, they had trouble coming up with stuff. So I was surprised at how much I enjoyed that episode. And yeah, I definitely agree with you that that was a standout for me. If we're, if we're characterizing uh, the season as like each character falling apart, which is how I'm thinking about it, I think they yeah. did a great job of sort of taking away her secret career as a movie executive and sort of showing that. I, I, I think maybe it was always, the show always played with her as like, really street smart she wasn't she didn't have the brains and neither did anyone else in her family for that matter except yeah. maybe george michael but she's she was maybe the the most worldly character on the show she was the one that was able to interact yeah. with the world um and i think i think it showed how that that sort of like her rope sort of ran out on that when her career fell out from under her and she got lost um and i think it was actually it was a good emotional story which some of the other episodes sort of lacked the emotional underpinnings they thought they had hers i thought really worked emotionally and I thought it was just really funny. There was a lot of story there. And I was surprised by how well Maybe worked um, to the point where when it was the Maybe episode, I was like, oh, okay. Like, uh, you know, I've always liked Maybe. I think Alia Shikata is a very underused actress for how good she is. Um, but I wasn't as excited as I was when, you know, a Job episode popped up. And I thought that yeah. was an excellent episode. Um, no, I do, I do too. Like, I, I can't believe I, that didn't come to mind immediately because, yeah, I think I actually would consider that to be my my third favorite if we're, like, ranking them. Yeah, I, I love the Maybe episode. I was surprised at how much I loved the Maybe episode. And um, I, I think it was just – that's one of those characters that, like, I'm, I'm most anxious to pick up with where we see her next because I think she was one of the farthest to follow the entire group. Yeah, um, and I, I think the show did a great job of uh, – using maybe and george michael two characters who i think george michael in addition to maybe during the series run was sort of a character they searched for things to do with him and it wasn't always clear they did like again they always used him well because pretty much everything in the original rest development run is pretty awesome yeah. um but those two characters felt like the whole point was like it gave, they gave the show some stakes because there were young children around that could be corrupted by everything and right. i think season four uses the emotions of that to say like yeah like they aren't living perfect lives and part of it is because they've grown up around all this yeah. Um, so I think that was really effective. And the other episode I wanted to highlight, which I, I, I've already heard some people complaining about it, and I thought it was just hysterical, is Buster's episode, Off the Hook. Okay, um, that was the one that I, w I wasn't thrilled with. See, I, and I know a lot of people say that, and I think it goes yeah. it goes way further, way broader, and way weirder than any of the other episodes. But for me, that was always Buster's character, and it worked It worked completely. I, I One of the things I died laughing at was the way he sort of Howard Hughes up in the penthouse um, and it was just like there were martini glasses all over the place that he was making for Lucille every day. And he had the the uh, pillow dressed as Lucille. And then when he gets the giant hand, that's something that's so stupid and shouldn't work at all. And I see why people are annoyed by it. And I thought it was just hysterical that he now like he went from the hook to he got his hand back. But it was huge and like it gave him super strength and it would malfunction in funny ways. And it sort of um, it reminded me, since we've already mentioned uh, Jessica Walter on Archer, it reminded me of the way they use uh, Ray on Archer. And he's sort of he's paralyzed and he's not. And that's sort of a, an interesting you know, dynamic yeah. they play with on that show. And I think for me, it worked. And I know that uh, from people I've been talking to, Buster's episode is considered one of the weaker points. And I wanted to highlight that I thought it was hysterical, um, though I know it was the weirdest. And I know that it also kind of suffered from the fact that Tony Hale's Veep schedule, I think, kept him from a lot of uh, the shoots. So I think he was a more isolated character than a lot of the other ones. Yeah, I, to, to be honest with you, I had no problem with the weirdness. That was not my issue with the episode. I, I actually... 
did like a lot of the places it went. To me, I think it was just that the jokes just weren't landing for me. I didn't like I thought the Norman Bates comparison were kind of funny that when they went that way. Um, but the rest of it just like uh, I, I like I actually did like the big hand stuff. I thought that was funny. But it just just I don't know what it was. For some reason, like just a lot of the jokes in that one weren't landing with me the way I, they were for other characters and other storylines. Well, that's good. So that I, didn't, nice I didn't outright dislike the episode so much as it was just kind of my that was the one where I got up to go fix a snack. during. Sure. Yeah. And I think that makes for a nice transition into episodes we liked a little less. So um, I know you've already mentioned that was not one of your favorites. Were there others that you thought were were not as up to par as the ones we've just mentioned? Uh, I'll say. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. I, I, no, I, I think everything else was pretty much nicely in the middle for me. Um, uh, maybe to varying degrees, but that was, that was really the clunker for me. The others, uh, I all I really like maybe, um, see, it, it's hard to pick out some of the individual ones. Maybe the second George senior one. Yeah. I was going to say yeah. that was one of the ones I was going to mention. Um, I think I think uh, yeah the second George Senior one I think the George Senior story didn't really work for me for the amount of screen yeah. time I gave it um, it was a good funny story that I think did not need two episodes um, and that's not a question of episode length like we were talking about earlier I think it's just that story grew for longer and went less places than in any of the others I think so yeah it was strange that it got twice the length of say Job or Buster right. Um, yeah, I didn't like because I, I liked the first one he had, but um, and especially the uh, introduction of John Slatterly, I thought was just amazing. Dr. Norman is a character I would like to see come back regularly, like maybe as the uh, the Bluth's own personal doctor or something moving forward, since they can't stand the guy who they always run into in the hospital <laughs> every time. Um, but yeah, I thought he was a great addition. I, 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 I did really like the first episode a lot where it was just George Sr. hanging out in the desert with a bunch of hippies. I thought that was a great kind of direction to go in. I thought that I worked really well. I thought once they started, yeah. like, George Sr. and Oscar alternating personalities was something that was sort of a funny idea, but there was never really a clear reason why it was happening. And yeah, it, so it was, I, I'm guessing it was the plant, but yeah, they never, they kind of just left that one um dangling i think more so than any of the other plot lines that was just never really wrapped up in any way and it was the sort of thing where i can see in a writer's room the idea being really funny because they're both jeffrey tambor and he's been playing them the yeah. whole time and like no one can tell them apart anyway and that's been a joke throughout the series so now like they start to switch personalities like on paper it plays well to me and i understand that it's clever and i see what they were trying to do it didn't work for me all that well in execution because it felt like well, Jeffrey Tambor's played them both the whole time, and yeah. we'll haven't been able to tell them apart the whole time. So, like, outside of Barry calling George Sr. a little girl, and Oscar, like, I guess, like, winning Lucille over, but he's done that when he's Oscar. So, yeah, just, it was yeah. something that I think worked in, in theory that didn't play for me well in execution. And uh, while we're talking about things that worked a little less well for me, I'll say... Um, I think the Lindsay stuff worked better than I expected because she was never my favorite on the original series. But I think, again, she had more storyline than I was interested in. Um, I think they, they, they drew her out too far. And I think as much as I really do think that the story they gave Lindsay works, uh, and it's actually yeah. a really good, interesting story, it, it was more laugh-free than a lot of the other storylines, which is not necessarily a problem. But when you're used to watching Arrested Development and being very dense with jokes, I think her episodes were had the sparsest jokes. Um, 
And I'll it say- It was interesting, they, they almost used Lindsay more to like move the actual super story along more than I think any of the other characters. I wonder if she was um, just more available, which is possible because she's not on anything at the moment. Yeah, no, that, I think that's that's totally possible. But like like thinking back on it, I mean, like a lot of the bigger story arc that they were dealing with in terms of like actual plot progression happened in Lindsay's episodes, which is not a character you'd expect that you'd expect that to be Michael's role in the series. Yeah, um, maybe Jason Bateman had movies. That's actually yeah. now that I'm thinking about it, that's probably why it why it was. And it yeah. felt like a strange choice. Um, I will say while we're talking about the laugh free stretches. There are a lot of them in this season, and I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing. It's not as dense a comedy as the show used to be, um, but that, yeah, that I, takes some time to adjust to for me. It did, too, but like I still laughed a lot in pretty much every episode. Like There was never an episode where I was saying to myself, this really isn't working. I mean, even the Lindsay episodes where the laughs weren't entirely dense, uh, they were still there. Like I, they, they, still, they still hit. Um, oh, yeah, and I mean, this is clear— uh, I think I keep comparing it in my head, and we can talk a little bit more yeah. about this in a second if you want. I keep comparing it in my head to Community Season 4, and where that just felt like a soulless clone that was using references of earlier episodes to me, this felt like very clearly Arrested Development, just trying to do something different than it had done before. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would, would respect that. that. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think there are, there are things that I laughed at here as hard as I laughed at pretty much anything in the original series, and as hard as I've laughed at anything in a long time. Um... One so, of my one of my biggest laugh moments, I think, was um, the Thanksgiving miracle. That I was just gonna bring that up. That yeah. I laughed as hard at that as I've laughed at anything in the show's entire history. Um, oh yeah. When they they uh, find a duck in their cabinet and use the for sale signs to shuffle it into the oven, and then Tobias <laughs> opens duck Lorange, and the duck comes out and they're throwing burning hot oranges at it. Yeah. Oh uh, that killed me. Um, I know a lot of people, this is another thing I've read a lot of people not yeah. liking. I loved um, Michael's increasingly complex planes for the vote out. And possibly just because I think P-Hound is a really funny name for a college roommate. And I laughed yeah. every time they were talking about P-Hound. But I love just like how long it took him to devise a plan to vote P-Hound out, especially considering everyone that was with him knew there was a pretty obvious solution, but did not want to help him because they wanted to vote him out. Yep. <laughs> And the way that it kept coming back, like when they did the twin vote out for George Michael and all the twins kept coming in and <laughs> splitting yeah. the vote, I just thought that was a good running gag that I really enjoyed. Yeah, there there were a lot of those. Like, I also like the, like, George Michael's, when he's in his head, is so much longer than all the other characters. And those were all, like, new additions to the mythology that I really enjoyed. Yeah, and uh, um, I liked the way that they elevated George Michael's perfectly tuned internal clock to a plot point. <laughs> yep, yep. Again, one of those tiny little things that they found a way to bring back in a huge way. Um, this show's always been good, and one of the things I think we both, and I know I, loved about it is the way that it seems to know its characters so well that it doesn't have to make a distinction between huge recurring jokes and tiny things because they're both part of these characters' lives. Sure. Um, you, you were mentioning before a moment where you said you didn't think some of the emotional arcs really had the the punch or the depth that they were trying to achieve which ones would you specifically point out emotionally i think the tobias story thinks it's deeper than it actually is though it's tobias and maria bamford running around for most of it so i was laughing yeah. my ass off um but like tobias is homeless for a while and he's dating a heroin addict and then he's you know running a rehab center and like i think that they thought and it was like this season as a whole, I think, was much darker than than see any of the previous seasons. But it oh, also yeah, it's incredibly like, dark. It also felt like I was supposed to be feeling a lot more 
for Tobias than I was. Um, I don't know if you felt the same way. Um, I don't know. I, I, I definitely was feeling for him. Um, I don't know if maybe it was as much as I felt for certain other characters. Like, uh, I, 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 th- I really um, felt for Lindsay a lot in her episodes, I felt like. So maybe not quite to that extent. Um, George Sr., uh, Lu- Lucille, I thought, was like the end of her episode had one of the biggest emotional punches for me. Yeah. When with the Tobias and the Invisible Woman speech, mm-hmm. which I thought was just phenomenal. But yeah, maybe Tobias probably wasn't as strong as some of the other ones. Um, I think I think you just nailed emotional. some of the ones that were. I think Lucille was very strong to me. And I we've already mentioned this sort of I think maybe in George Michael had really great emotional stakes. And George Michael, now that we're in spoiler country, we can talk about the ending of, of season four where uh it's revealed that not only have George Michael and Michael both been dating Isla Fisher's character, Rebel Alley, but yeah. that Michael knew he was dating the same woman as his son and decided to keep dating her anyway. And it's sort of the, the perfect break that you needed George Michael to have. I think the show used to be really smart about the way it said, like, Michael's keeping the family together and Michael feels like he's great, but he has this superiority complex that's not necessarily true. And he's yeah. kind of an idiot and he's very selfish and he never pays attention to George Michael. And he's not really a great father like he thinks he is. And I think George Michael always felt a lot of sympathy for his dad and felt very close to his dad. And this season took George Michael and sort of made him realize, wow, like my dad is more like the rest of his family than he thinks. And I don't want to be like them. Yeah. And I I thought I thought the end moment was was perfect. Like I I couldn't have like that end beat is right before the credits hit was. If the show is there, I'm fine with it. Like, I think it was a beautiful way to end it. And yeah. really, like, I, I mean beautiful. It wasn't just, like, a nice, clever, funny Arrested Development thing. It was a really well-done emotional ending, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I, I I honestly cannot think of another way I would have liked that to end. Like, that was, for me, that was just the perfect beat right and there. And I also, I just loved the way that um, while it was telling the story about George Michael moving away from his family and realizing the things he did not like about them, it was also a story about how George Michael has taken on a lot of his family's characteristics. The way yeah. he's thinking, like, I don't want to be a liar like the rest of them. I don't want to do these things. And yet, um, one of my favorite jokes in his storyline was when uh, he's talking about how he wants to just be honest in who he is with his girlfriend. And maybe he's like, you told her your real name yet? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's I... someone who does not think he is who he is. And he's lying as much as anyone else in the family. But he is trying to be a better person when it's convenient for him, which is sort of how Michael's raised him. Like, that's how Michael has been throughout the entire run of Arrested Development is someone who thinks he's doing the right thing and wants to be the good guy and is when it's convenient for him. But when push comes to shove, is willing to do terrible things like date his son's girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think in, in many ways, like this season was not only the family having finally fallen apart, but it was like the true fall of Michael, whereas really like Michael was only superior in comparison with these people who are just like the only other people on the planet more terrible than him. And finally, when he's away from them, um, you kind of see his like just how far he can fall. And he like he fell the furthest, I think, of everybody. Like oh, yeah. maybe he was close, but I mean, like, you know, ending up as a registered sex offender by the end of the season right along with her father. But um, uh, in, in terms of what was important to Michael and in, like and seeing what he was truly capable of, um, this was, I think, a very dark season for Michael. And I, I, I actually think it was an interesting and daring choice to make Michael's story first. It was obvious because Michael's the main character, but that first episode, I was like, wow, this is sad. Like, I felt sad for Michael as much as I was laughing in that first episode. But I think the second episode of Michael's 
where uh, which is, has a lot of the Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, um, Warden Gentles, Carl Weathers stuff was yeah. hysterical. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That that's, was, I think that's another standout for me was the second Michael episode. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten to mention it, but now that I'm thinking about it, like him walking in with Carl Weathers and Warden Gentles, and it was just like. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the, all, the, all the jokes about Imagine Entertainment and, and Jerry Bruckheimer yeah. and how he wouldn't come off the pirate ship, and, like, <laughs> there was just a lot of really good stuff in there that was completely different from anything the show was able to do before, and was able yeah. to comment on, like, the quest to get a movie and everything without being quite as cute as um, the maybe-it's-a-movie thing at the end of the series finale. Yeah. But um, I do, I think that this that this season actually because it was so much darker and because it was less dense with laughs was able to tell a more emotional story that did often connect for me. Yeah. I think on the whole, the emotional story really, really, really worked a lot for me. And I'll just repeat this again. One of the things that worked well for me was it wasn't just the story of Michael. It became really the story of everyone and offered you to extents that worked more than others, chances to empathize with some of these characters and realize that, this it, this really is a show about a family and it's like they're not always these cartoon characters that they are that they they can be hurt they can be wounded and they do have things they want and yes they are terrible people still but these things exist yeah um just shifting the focus for a moment something i'd like to touch upon even i know that this is getting kind of well long to yeah we'll have to wrap up soon but please feel free okay um, one thing I really noticed going into this, I'm anxious to hear how you thought about this, was um, Arrested Development was always a show that was very, very rooted in current events in a way that was it, ma- it made itself very much a product of the times, but never so much in a way that I think really dated it. I mean, maybe we're still too close to the Iraq war to like make that comparison. But the same like I, I always thought that material still worked like years and years later. And I thought this show, I, I thought this season also similarly did a good job of that with um, the allusions to Herman Cain, uh, the 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 housing fallout. I mean, this is stuff that we're like several years removed from now, but still felt very much. It didn't feel um, really dated or really um, like the show was trying to be modern, whereas it, it, it had this nice sort of like. I don't want to say timeless, but of the times, but not like completely rooted to it right to it this is i'm not articulating this well but you no, don't I think understand, I understand what i'm exactly saying, what saying. Yeah. and i agree um i actually think some of it didn't work as well for me as other things the thing that worked the best for me and is a recurring gag that i hope the show returns to in a way you mentioned you hope dr norman comes back cw swapigans i think yes. was a, like a near perfect encapsulation of like the economic crisis and the way that things just fell out all of a sudden um yes. and that was a joke that felt to me like the way that the show would play with the iraq war and its original run um some of it didn't work as well for me i liked uh you got uh, ed helms brief appearance as the real estate agent just selling them the extravagant home um you know to take it because then you'll have it um that was yeah. kind of funny felt a little bit like some of it, some of the of the time stuff in the new season felt a little bit like it was striving to be more of the times. Um, some of it, for me, Buster becoming a drone operator was brilliant. Like, yeah, that, I like that. I like that, that a lot. Exactly well for me. It made a great point about drone strikes that was funny, and then it moved on. Like, yep. that felt very of the times and integrated in the same way CW Swapigans did when they first showed up there, and then having people reference it again and again sort of felt like it had become part of the world of this show, yes. and a part of the world that made sense considering the things that had happened. Um, so those things worked really well for me. Some of the rest of it uh, I thought was okay. I did think it was interesting um, 
the the political elements that had seeped into these characters' worlds with uh, both Lucille Ostero and um, Herbert Love, a new character played by Terry Crews, yeah. running for Congress. Um, especially because I remember talking when the show was originally canceled and they were talking about a movie uh, about how my dream uh, plotline for the movie would be Job running for office because I thought that was that would be a great <laughs> plotline. Because um, yeah. I feel like Job as a politician would work extremely well. And the show yeah. did not go that way, yeah. but they did run into a lot of political plot lines, and they thrust Lindsay into a political role and, and Sally Sitwell into a political role. Um, and I thought that worked pretty well. Um, yeah, I, I think it left off with a very new and interesting thing for Lindsay to be doing when they pick back up again. Um, so I and... guess I guess I can't think of anything of the other time stuff off the top of my head that didn't work for me. Yeah. I remember thinking sometimes, like, this is being a little too cloying about, like, look at how modern and of the times we are uh, in a way that I never felt about the original show. But I can't think of it right now, so it must not stick yeah. out all that prominently. Maybe um, the uh, the stuff about how nobody can really use the Apple products right, but um, yeah. that's the only, that was a small thing. It was Yeah, that was, that was something you almost didn't even have to notice if you didn't want to. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, like, uh, I my mom, who has not seen season four yet because she had never finished the original run of the series, she was watching season three uh, the last couple of days to catch up. And uh, I did purposely did not want to watch the show in the last month or so. I've seen it so many times I didn't feel like I ne- needed to. And I did yeah. not want to be consciously comparing the quality uh, that freshly in my mind because I feel I figured there was no way that season four was going to live up. But yeah. I remember uh, seeing part of an episode that she was watching um, – that involved the the like back when the show was doing the extended Jamie Kennedy gags. Um, yeah, that's like one of the things in the original run of the show that I think like will not age well at all because no one's gonna know who Jamie Kennedy is even now, really. Right. Um, but I don't I I can't think of anything in this run that dates that will date like that. I think it it did work pretty well. Um, before we wrap up, I did want to say uh something about what we were talking about earlier, which is the way that the show uh operated as a narrative. Um and effective ways and i wanted to mention the theme song which when you watch the first episode and it's now the story of a family whose future was abruptly canceled and you know then it's it's this person's arrested development i kind of realized uh the first time i was like that's cute but like a little a little bit too much for me but as i went on and realized that uh what the theme song was actually saying was it used to be uh now the story of a son who has to keep his family together it's now now the story of this person who has to keep themselves together and like that that eventually started to cement into place for me as what this season was really about and the way that Mitch Hurwitz was doing something new and different and the way that it did form like a middle chapter. First, you see Michael trying to keep the family together. Now we see them falling apart, and I assume eventually we'll see them come back together. Yeah, I think that will be what the next chapter will be, and I very much look forward to that. Uh, yeah, whether whether in a fifth season, which I think would be excellent, or a movie, um, I, I would very much look forward to Arrested Development. I think that... Season four may not be as good as the first three seasons, but I think it works as its own thing, and I thought it was very good television throughout. Um, yeah, you know, I in 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 ways, I mean, I I think I, it definitely can't compete with one and two, but you know, there there were moments in season three where I started to see some of the cracks showing, and while this may have not been as laugh out loud funny as those three seasons, I think this definitely. I didn't really see as many of the cracks in this season as I think I might have saw in at certain moments in season three. I mean, I would have to go back and rewatch to really back that statement up. But I like I've always liked season three more than most people I know. Um, It gets wackier, but I don't necessarily mind the show at its wackiest. And for what uh, it comes down to me is like I really wasn't a fan of the Rita plotline. Yeah, I don't think that worked. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, 
But I also think uh, this doesn't apply to Rita, but it applies to a lot of things I hear people complain about. I think that the season was really hurt from thinking they had a longer episode order than they sure. did and having to cram a lot in. But I think yeah. what they did cram in was great stuff. And I do think it was more laugh out loud funny. I think season four may go down as the most emotionally resonant season for me once I've seen it a few more times. Because I yeah. think the laughs aren't as dense, but the more we've talked about this and the more I've thought about it, the more I think season four did work for me emotionally in ways I'm not even sure the first two seasons were trying all that often. Like they occasionally would feign toward a message and sort of make jokes about it. But I feel like there were messages here and it was a, it was a good season uh, emotionally for these characters yeah. in a way that I don't know I ever would have expected the show to be able to achieve. Yeah, but bottom line, I think the thing that most surprises me is how positive I came out of watching this whole thing. Because like, again, like just to bring it back around to how we started this all out was I don't know that there's been anything quite like the anticipation I had for this season of Arrested Development. Like, expectations are always tough with something you love, and I don't think there's something that I love... There, there's not many things that I love as much as I love Arrested Development. And so to come out of, like, this second lease on life seven years later where it's like there was no guarantee that that same lightning in a bottle was going to be recaptured, and to having thoroughly enjoyed watching these episodes as much as I did... I think that's the win. I think that's I, I think that's the the best possible takeaway you can have from this. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I always cite Arrested Development as my single favorite sitcom of all time. And to have that come back this long later and to have me walk away going, that was pretty good. And honestly, liking it more the more I think about it and probably even going to like it more when I've rewatched it. Um, I was thinking to myself for the podcast, I already think I want to go back and rewatch the episodes and sort of start to piece things together that I missed the first time around. And I've seen people cropping up on the Internet saying, like, I liked this little joke. And I'm like, I missed that. Um, and that's how this show works. You know, there are going to be all sorts of things that I didn't catch the first time that I'll see two or three times in. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's done a very good service to the legacy of the show, even if it will take a while for people to recognize that. Yeah. True. Um, so with that, we will wrap up the Arrested Development talk and let's, uh, move. We'll have to do a briefer talk than we might've thought about, about Jeff Johns, Green Lantern and the end of his nine year tenure on the title. Yeah. Um, you know, this is just something that I, I just kind of wanted to touch on and mention on because it really is. I think a huge achievement like to have a run of that length in this modern era of comics where the trend is has been mostly towards shorter runs. I mean, we have had lengthy runs of the past decade that are of note, but I think John's is pretty much one of the longest of all of these. I think the only person who has outpaced him right now would be Brian Bendis on Ultimate Spider-Man. I think everybody else has just been I, I think those two are now officially like the two longest running like runs at, at this moment of the um, past decade. So um, it's, it's a tremendous achievement over a hundred issues of green lantern, a nine, almost 10 year run on the title. And I think one of the things that was most impressive for me was that he took a character that I really didn't care all that much about or at all, to be honest with you and turned that title in that section of the DC universe into probably one of, for the majority of his run, the most exciting and part of DC. Um, it, it, it always felt like this huge gold mine that he had tapped into. And it was such an achievement in that green lantern, a character who you had to kind of consider like second tier in the DC pantheon, especially like in terms of, um, 
where you looked at where the character was picked up, where the Green Lantern you had starring in the titles wasn't even the first, second, third, or fourth character to inhabit that role. Like, that's the character you had. And that don't get me wrong, that character had a lot of fans, but it was just like a franchise I think a lot of people had written off. And Jeff took that and made it into the second most popular franchise at DC. And at some times during his run, it was the first most popular franchise at DC. And that's just such an achievement to be had. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll say, um, before I was even a monthly comics reader, that was one of the few uh, superhero comic series that I, I had read. Uh, because I'd heard so many good things about it from you and from other comics reading friends of mine that when I started reading more comics uh, and it eventually was building up to becoming a monthly reader when DC did the New 52, um, that was one of the ones that people singled out to me is you've got to read this. This is a great superhero book. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'd never cared about Green Lantern, didn't know that much about Green Lantern at all. And it was. I mean, for years, Jeff Johns was telling sort of a seamless, epic space opera that was just beautiful to watch i mean the sinestro core wars uh right into blackest night like there were there was a long run after his build-up was good and then he got going and it was just boom 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 like brilliant beautiful huge epic things were going on all the time in this book yeah um and it it, it is a landmark run and i think will probably go down uh as one of the all-time great superhero runs yeah i i think so too and i think with two john's credit is it's it's hard for me to think of another character or another franchise where really this much universe building and mythos creating happened so late in their run. Like when you look to most of these characters, like most of these characters, like all the heavy lifting was done like in the 60s. Yeah. And like a lot of that stuff, like, you know, stuff has been added since then. But like for the most part, you return to a lot of that stuff. Whereas for Green Lantern, I feel like an equal contribution to the origins that happened in the 60s was made in the aughts, where Johns really, I would say, took what was there and doubled it with what his contribution for the next people that have to play with Green Lantern. They have like literally they owe as much to Johns as I think they owe to the Julius Schwartz and the people who created these mythos to begin with. Yeah, I, I mean, you know more about the history of the medium than I, but I feel like uh, the mythos of Green Lantern, as I think of it, was almost whole cloth invented by Johns. Like the yeah. basic, the basic things existed, but the the color spectrum and each of the different uh, cores that is formed out of that spectrum and the powers that they have and all that—that's all Johns, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and like, that's like to me, so that's Green Lantern. You didn't have before Atrocitus, Larflees, um, Saint Walker. J- yeah, Saint Walker, uh, Simon Baz. They, these are just so many characters were added to these that you can't really just like, I think John's himself. So like, it's, it's kind of, you, you, it's just, it was just so gratifying to like see a universe where it's like these guys, these characters are part of the mythos. Now, like this is like what green lantern is. It's these characters that were really only invented within the last 10 years. And it's just like, it's so, it's such a much more rich tapestry now than it was before. I mean, not to say that what came before wasn't good, but it's just like John's just added so much. It's just so incredible. It's like it's just hard to think of another run where the contributions of a new writer, you can see that being built upon in the future and respected and almost as like a like a benchmark for where this character goes forward. So, yeah. So kudos to Jeff Johns and what he's done for Green Lantern and for DC Comics. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that I've had I've had harsher words for him over the New 52 run of the book than you have. Um, and I think that the, the book did lose its way a bit in its uh, last year or so. But just the amount of things he accomplished in that time, and I think the way he wrapped things up, 
I don't think he salvaged a story that for me didn't really work as his last story. Um, but that last issue was excellence and sort of took time to highlight all the things he had done and to really yeah. be a great sign off. Um, so it was, a, wanna... it was an emotional issue for me. Like I, I really thought it, it was just like a celebration of the past nine years and everything that was great about them. So while the villain for that arc in this past year had never really worked for me as a whole, the story itself of that last issue really hit home and really felt very, very satisfying to me as a as a capper to his work on the series. Yeah. And I like I said, I don't, I don't want to spend much time criticizing what I think was like a very small footnote that didn't particularly work for me uh, in a run that is just full of such epic world building. And such. he John, Jeff Johns wrote a you know, comics event in Blackest Night that worked like yeah. that alone. Yeah. Like it was an event that was also an amazing and great story. Yeah. Um, and that's like a very rare thing in comics and the way he built this world. Basically, I think uh, he deserves all the credit in the world and I salute him for this. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, uh, is there anything else we want to say before we wrap this thing? That's gone a bit long up. Uh, no, I think that's it. I think we got to send this one off. And, uh, I mean, I think I can guess who the winner of the Rachel Tardif Memorial Award is, but why don't you, uh, <laughs> reveal the computations? Well, um, I will reveal the computations and, you know, it's, it's actually a closer call than you might think, but I'm going to give this one to Jeff Johns. Um, really? Yeah. I, I'm surprised to be honest with you. Wow. You All know, right. Mitch Hurwitz, I'm not gonna argue with Mitch Hurwitz was close. He did great, great work. Um, but Mitch Hurwitz has had had a long time off to plot and figure this out, and he had a long time to put it together. Johns was writing a monthly comic book for the last ten years, um, turning out a hundred issues, and it was, you know, sterling for a for a large part of that run. So yeah. Hurwitz, uh, I love you. I think you did great work this week and for the you know months and years you've been working on this, but. I got to give this one to Jeff Johns, who can come on down to the review named offices, pick up his trophy and small cash prize um, and get a hearty handshake from Chris and I for a job well done. Absolutely. Uh, for now, uh, we're going to sign off. Uh, we'll be back next week where we will finally return to the review named movie club, which I promised before. But we had some stragglers in catching up. So next week we'll be talking about tiny furniture. Um, as always, you can talk to us at reviewnamed at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at review to be named you can come to the site read our stuff and comment at reviewnamed.com uh and we hope you'll be back next week bye bye bye